Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. This week, I will be talking to Adrian Monk of the World Economic Forum about the issue of inequality. Inequality has been on the rise in both the US and in many parts of the world, and we wanted to take an opportunity to discuss what it means for our society, for our politics, and how it could possibly be reined in or reversed. But first, a quick news roundup. This week, the big news is that it was reported that Robert Mueller finally has finished his investigation into Russian collusion and its connections with the Trump administration. He filed a report which has not been seen by Congress or by any member of the public to date. However, the newly appointed Attorney General Barr did issue a four-page letter to the Chairman of the uh, Intelligence Committee of Congress uh, stating that he summarized his findings as follows, effectively one, on the charge of collusion with Russia. According to his statement, the um, the, the, the Mueller investigation found uh, no collusion. He importantly did not say that they found no evidence of collusion. He said that they were choosing not to prosecute collusion. So I need to be really clear about that. Um, but it's clear there is some evidence of collusion. We have extensive knowledge of contacts between uh, President Trump and his campaign and the Russian government, both directly and indirectly. But um, in order to prove conspiracy, it would have been necessary. And we don't know this from Barr's letter. We know virtually nothing from Barr's letter. What we know fundamentally is that in order to prove that those contacts added up to conspiracy, Mueller would have been it had to be able to demonstrate what was the president's intention and what were the intentions of the other actors. Um, it's an extremely difficult bar to clear, and at least if we are to take Barr's memo at its word, the, the situation seems to be that Mueller has decided to decline prosecution. On the second matter, which was the question of obstruction of justice, where we also have quite a lot of information in the public domain about Trump's behavior, um, it explicitly states that Mueller is not absolving, nor is he accusing. Um, he's basically leaving the final decision up, according to Barr, to Barr himself. Now, this is all based on the letter that we received from the Attorney General. I don't know what's really in the report. We know that Mueller's report was 300 pages long. But it is noteworthy that um, even according to Barr's own summary, that Mueller did not clear the president of obstruction, that he did not feel that he could make a judgment, which is very unusual um, for a prosecutor. I mean, after all, that is his job um, to make a determination. So there are a lot of questions left open about this. Um, and it may well be one hypothesis. It may well be that Mueller concluded hypothetically that, for example, Trump was guilty of of obstruction of justice. However, he did not think that the president could be indicted because the law doesn't necessarily, or at least it is unclear whether the law allows for a sitting president to be indicted. If that is the case, then the legal judgment may have been that it's up to the discretion of Congress, not to Mueller, um, whether or not any action can be taken against the president, because it would have to be in the form of an impeachment hearing. If that were the case, then you might well see a report issued in which um, crimes were detailed, evidence were detailed, um, but no, no prosecutorial recommendation were made. We haven't seen that report yet, so we don't know. Um, I just want to caution people to not get too far ahead of this. The media has already been talking quite a lot um, as if kind of the president's been absolved. Mueller says this, Mueller says that. We know almost nothing about what Robert Mueller actually says. I have no reason to believe he's done anything other than a thorough and a professional job. Um, and if indeed his conclusion is that the president committed no crimes, that would be personally a great relief. My concern is, however, that we 
don't know that that is what he found. And it's very important that we not get ahead of what is knowable at this point. Congress will be subpoenaing that report. It's 300 pages, excluding uh, exhibits. So I'm sure when it comes to light, and I hope it does come to light very soon so that we can come to a resolution on this matter, um, we will know more at that point. In the meantime, just everybody be cool. So let's dive into the main topic of this week's podcast. Inequality has been something that's been driving American political conversation for all of my adult lifetime, but I think it's become particularly salient over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, um, as we've seen increasingly the larger share of American wealth going to the top 1% and indeed to the top 0.1% of population and a smaller and smaller share of American wealth being held by those at the bottom 50% of the uh, population. Um, Here to talk with me about that today is uh, my distinguished guest from the World Economic Forum, and I will let him introduce himself. My name is Adrian Monk, and I'm manager in charge of public engagement at the World Economic Forum. What does that mean? It means I'm responsible for all of our communications with the global public, Um, everything we try and share with them, everything we try and tell them about our take on the world. Uh, And uh, I also look after two of our communities that are aimed at younger people in their 20s and 30s, which is our Global Shapers group of 20-somethings, around 400 cities uh, across the world, and young global leaders, of whom there are around eight or 900. They're all people in their 30s who have some uh, significant achievement uh, for which they're recognized. Fantastic. And I think we should probably just kind of address the elephant in the room straight away. Um, In terms of WEF, um, Davos has been in the conversation around kind of the global elite um, for a long, long time. Mm. Um, And I think there's even, you know, so Stephen Huntington, uh, Samuel Huntington, I think, coined the term Davos man for a sort of a catchphrase for a particular Mm. type of individual um, who's deemed to be kind of wealthy and powerful. Um, And the, the allegation is that the participants in the forum at Davos are sort of running the economy in their own interests. Mm. Um, is there any part of that criticism that you think is fair and what what do you think is less fair? So I suppose the first thing I'd say is um, the forum exists as a kind of experiment, which is to say it it runs according to something which is very awkward and dull called the multi-stakeholder principle. And that principle is that one section of society alone cannot uh, cannot achieve social change. And that means... Uh, governments by themselves can't do it. That means the private sector by itself can't do it. It means labor unions can't do it. It means art, science, society, culture, academics can't do it. So you need to put these people together to achieve uh, any kind of significant or meaningful change. And you have to put them together at, if you like, leadership level. And uh, that's the premise on which the forum is founded. Um, it's been throughout its history, I suppose, um, social democratic with a small s and a small d, because that founding principle, if you like, comes out of the experience the founder of this organization, Klaus Schwab, had when he was growing up in Germany in the post-war period, where, for obvious reasons, German society needed everyone's contribution to help it rebuild itself from really the ashes of the Second World War. And uh, that Uh, conversation has been carried on in Davos. Now, I suppose you look at someone like Samuel Huntington, and it's interesting that that Sam Huntington's name gets trotted out in connection with Davos. Uh, And Sam Huntington did come to Davos uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, His basic criticism is uh, a nationalist criticism. He Mm -hmm. basically thinks that that Davos man or the people who come to Davos are citizens of nowhere, as Theresa May would say, the people with no real connection with communities. Um, And I think that's uh, both fascinating and a completely ill-conceived conception because each of us is plugged into communities in very meaningful and powerful ways. None of us comes into uh, a position without having families, experiences and extended uh, connections into our societies. And and Huntington himself is something of a conservative uh, nationalist. If you look at his last book, 
where he talks about America. He basically says that uh, Latinos can play no part in, uh, in what he calls the American dream. Uh, he says there is no Latino dream. He's an incredibly right-wing, incredibly conservative individual. And it does make me kind of smile wryly when I hear critics on the far left kind of trot his name out uh, as a critique of what we're trying to do at the forum, because actually they're failing really to understand anything about the nature of his thought. And I think, you know, Sam is one of the most pernicious thinkers of the late 20th century, uh, because that idea that none of us can have uh, a global or a kind of worldview uh, and that each of us has to go back into our box and be from some ethnically uh, pure, uh, racially harmonious community uh, is a really foul concept and, and one which I'm happy to kind of stand in opposition to. Yeah, and I think I'm entirely with you on that. Um, so don't want, don't don't make the mistake of thinking I'm invoking the name of Samuel Huntington with admiration. Um, but there are people, sort of more recently, and even if you just look at this year in Davos, mm. um, there was a conversation that that, that took place around um, this the concept, one of the things that's in my Red Sox baseball cap, which we might come mm. to when we do the gut check game, around, for example, raising raising income tax on mm. uh, on higher earners, sure. um, which was greeted with a lot of kind of skepticism by the Davos audience, so to speak. Well, um, but then, uh, of let course, me, you, let had, me, you, you did let have me, someone speaking out so let me on stop the other side of it. So. Let me stop you there for a minute. I mean, that was Rutger Bregman. And Rutger's written for us before yeah. on actually as part of our engagement with uh, the the wider world. He's someone who's written for the forum on uh, some of the things that he has expertise in, like uh, universal basic income, which is one of his uh, topics. And and Rutger actually in that room. And if you check in with some of the people who were in the room, was quite warmly received because actually mm -hmm. a lot of the people in the room were uh, younger people. There were a big contingent of those young twenty-somethings in the global shapers community for whom what Rutger was saying was kind of music to their ears. And actually, if Rutger had done us the favor of reading some of our work on inclusion, he would have seen that a lot of the recommendations he was making are actually pretty broadly endorsed by the forum's yes. own research. And so in a sense, I think that was a, something of uh, that we are a prey to, if you like, which is, you know, that meeting is open. We do allow people the stage. We do let them say what they want to say. And the idea that he having been, you know, allowed that platform, then says, this is the thing that I can't talk about, is in itself slightly tautological and a little bit weird, because it was precisely the thing he was allowed to talk about uh, on a Time magazine panel devoted to talking about inequality. And, uh, you know, as it was, we'd actually had him talking about taxation. Uh, and he, as he described it, tucked away in the media village. I mean, mm. tucked away in a media center is a pretty odd idea of where tuck, what tucked away looks like when you have a thousand of the world's journalists present in Davos uh, and when what you're doing is webcast an audience of, uh, of scores of thousands of people. So it was a little bit of grandstanding and part of convening the conversations that the forum convenes is actually putting up with people who want to come onto your platform and slam you for giving them a platform. Um, you know, it's it's a bitter irony of, of what it takes to bring people together, but it's part of the cost of doing business. You know, we shared what Rutger had to say uh, with our audiences. Uh, we shared it pretty widely. His characterization was a little bit disingenuous, but, you know, he's entitled to make his point and, and, and say his piece as it is. Yeah, absolutely. Tax is right at the heart of what has to be done to address uh, yeah. some of the inequality that we're seeing in developed societies. And, and yeah. you know, you'd have to be uh, bonkers not to think that that was uh, important. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I think it's it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think there's a and what often happens on the left, I, I would say, is there's a, a critique of there might be a critique of the participants, for example, that gets that gets extrapolated into a critique of the forum. Right. So I think, you know, there is a real kind of feeling of concern about the role that the super wealthy are playing in society. Um, mm. But WF, you know, the World Economic Forum didn't create that problem. Um, but some of the people oh. who come who come to your to your forum are some of the people being criticized. And maybe there's well, some, some the overlap, kind but... of billionaires who come to the World Economic Forum tend to be 
on mm-hmm. the philanthropic end of uh, the billionaire scale, if you like. They tend to be people who are interested in using their wealth to actually improve society rather than to, you know, fund dark money groups and uh, uh, and kind of influence things behind the scenes. I mean, those yeah. kind of people don't want to be seen on a public platform like Davos. They want to have their business transacted in secret. Uh, and they certainly don't want to come and put themselves in front of a thousand of the world's uh, journalists to kind of uh, have have what they're doing exposed. It's much more the you know the kind of people who I think stand for uh, the you know the responsible uh, use of of capital. People like Bill Gates who uh, are present in Davos. Yeah. Um, you know, and these are the people who. Uh, and Anjuridas uh, would uh, would say, you know, anyone who's who's got a billion dollars or whatever is, has got it by by foul means. I think that would be a pretty extraordinary allegation to uh, make against someone like Bill Gates. But um, you know, it, it is the case that there are as many labour leaders as central bankers in in Davos. You know, that's mm-hmm. what makes it valuable: the fact that you have this concentration of people from many many different sectors coming together and, and being able to have conversations that they might not be able to have in other places. And I think that leads us on to our, our core conversation about inequality itself, because mm. I think one of the one of the things, and I don't want to paraphrase your mission too much, but one of the things that you've talked about there is, is the need to bring people together from all different parts of society. Mm. And I think we probably have to extrapolate that to societies, plural, mm. in that so many of the problems that we seem to be coping with these days are... Um, in a global environment in which it's very difficult for any one nation, um, even with even a powerful government like the United States, to unilaterally mm. solve some of the problems that are perhaps underlying mm. long-term trends like rising rising global inequality. Um, so I guess that's that's the first thing to start with is what you know what is our definition of inequality, um, and to kind of just looking at it you know from a U.S. point of view and obviously this podcast is about U.S. politics mm. it looks to me like we've seen you know if you look at something like the Gini coefficient which is a kind of common measure of inequality and it's mm. probably a rough measure but it's a starting point it looks to me like if you look at American history it was kind of holding steady or declining until about the late 60s and then kind of started rising and then escalated in the 1980s and has been rising ever mm. since um, and a lot of, if you look behind those numbers, it really looks like it's been driven by especially strong income and wealth growth among the mm. super rich at a time when kind of overall incomes have remained stagnant. Mm. Does that assessment seem seem accurate to you? And, and what do you think is driving some of those factors? Um, I, you know, I was trained at university as a historian. And so i um, you know, forgive me if I kind of approach almost every single problem by by looking back. But I mean, I think one of the uh, interesting, most interesting analyses uh, I've seen of of inequality are historical uh, assessments, work by economic historians. Um, and I think one of the things that you're seeing in that sort of new scholarship around inequality, and you think of people like Thomas Piketty and others, uh, you know, Danny, Danny Roderick and, and people like that, Branko Milanovic, probably the most famous kind of scholar of, of, of inequality, is what I think a lot of people who grew up in the in the sort of baby boom era, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and maybe even into the 80s were assuming was um, that the system they grew up under was a kind of normal system. And I think what we we now understand far more is that the uh, the disruptions of the 20th century, notably the First World War and the Second World War, really were very fundamental disruptions in the you know the processes of accumulation that, without any intervention, sort of naturally occur in um, what you might want to call capitalist or, or developed economies, and I think that. Uh, you know, Walter Scheidel's book is called The Great Leveller, and it's basically saying that, you know, only only through war do you see any kind of redistribution. Um, I I think there's a kind of uh, a compelling logic to that. You know, my mum was a school teacher. She was the breadwinner in our family, and she was very much of the opinion that uh, when she taught in very poor schools, she basically said the only chance my kids have 
of competing is when they change the exam regulations because that's when the uh, kids from the rich schools, their tutoring doesn't really pay off because they've got nothing to base their kind of uh, exam gaming on. And I think if you look at, you know, I'm not saying you can extrapolate school exams out onto global economies, but I do think if you look at the way that economies work, the accretion of small advantages by people who have advantages already is built into almost every single system you can see. And without some kind of persistent intervention, you get these kind of growths in inequality. Um, it doesn't happen, you know, it, we're seeing it happen in societies. It hasn't happened globally in the last 25 years because what we've seen in the opening up of China, most notably, is the lifting out of poverty of enormous numbers of people, hundreds of millions of people. You know, the biggest improvement in global income in, you know, in recorded history. And that's been on the back of, largely on the back of China's progress, also on the back of some of India and Africa's progress. Yeah. So on the one hand, we've got global inequality kind of going down um and yet equality within countries seemingly going up but we need to be a bit careful don't we because so because there's a huge distinction between in between inequality and actual um rising incomes right so so the reason i raised that is i'm i've got a cheat sheet in front of me so um which is wildly unfair and i apologize in advance but i've got a chart in front of me of kind of the gini coefficient of different countries mm. right so it's absolutely true that incomes in china have been rising and the emergence of a chinese middle class has been a massive um kind of boon towards overall global global mm. economic improvement but it also has been true that at the same time that the middle class has been has been improving, inequality, which is a separate issue, has also been going up in China. Now yeah. you can say, you know, hypothetically, you could say inequality is not a problem if it's raising if it's raising all boats. But what we're starting to see in some countries, it seems to me, is that inequality, which fundamentally um, may or may not be a bad thing. As you say, without intervention, it, it tends to accrue. And at some point, it feels like we then see social dysfunction of, of a political and even potentially violent nature because people's reaction to seeing long inequality exacerbated is that they don't necessarily appreciate, they don't feel wealthy or they don't feel that their incomes are going up because what they see in society um, suggest that they're 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 becoming an underclass is that do you think that's a reasonable interpretation or am i missing out something important no i mean i think there's a lot of things going on in in the discussion around inequality and and what it does to economies i mean there's one critique of of inequality that's uh, i think is uh, is quite a powerful one which says that it's skewing economies in very nasty directions yeah. so if you look at for example the trend in uh you know uh, art purchasing, where art markets are going nuts with people investing, uh, I say investing, but, you know, purchasing um, art for absurdly inflated prices. If you look at the same thing with something like wine and other kind of bizarre, uh, you know, I love the fact they're called assets, but, you know, um, mm. old cars, watches, all these kind of, you know, essentially trinkets and kind of yeah. rather useless things are becoming objects of what we're supposed to believe is investment when it actually is simply the creation of asset bubbles by people who are not putting that money back into, uh, you know, the productive economy, if you like, yeah. um, unless you consider that kind of, you know, ateliers full of, um, uh, of sort of banksies are the future of the global economy. Um, I hope not. <laughs> which would be a, maybe a wonderful idea, but also a slightly um, hard to find enough walls to put uh, enough pictures on. But, uh, uh, you know, that's one argument against what inequality actually does to the structure of economies. I think the other um, broader social point is perhaps not necessarily that it causes uh, social unrest. You know, we've seen societies with quite astonishing levels of, uh, of inequality that have actually been uh, pretty stable and uh, uh, have carried on for hundreds of years. You know, arguably a society like the Roman Empire, which was uh, fundamentally uh, one of the most unequal societies imaginable, you know, continued on for nearly a thousand years with uh, those levels of inequality. I think what you're, uh, the concern is really about, you know, what kind of society we want people to live in. And, and do we want to people to live in a society where they are 
uh, angry or grumpy because they have to spend money on security guards and bigger gates and bigger, uh, you know, bigger fences around their properties? Or do you want to live in a society where you're subsidizing your uh, neighbor who you might feel does not uh, give as much to society or make as much of a contribution as you do. I mean, they're sort of the fundamental social choices that we face. It's either defending and protecting something we have or sharing it with perhaps people who perhaps we don't feel either culturally, uh, socially or uh, morally deserve to have it shared with them. I mean, and that comes back to um, the very fundamental issue that you mentioned at the beginning, which is tax. You know, the yeah. way that traditionally we've dealt with that is through taxing people. And that comes with its own set of problems. Yeah. You know? um, well, yeah, I mean, that's where that's where political kind of political culture comes in, doesn't it? Because as you as you said earlier, absent any kind of intervention, inequality has a tendency to rise. And and I would sus suspect probably that we don't just mean a one off intervention, but we actually mean ongoing systemic kind of culture wide Mm. across across the whole of the economy intervention mm. on an ongoing basis such as a, a, a tax system designed to mm. create equality or you know reduce inequality at the very least and certainly the story of of kind of america during my adult lifetime has been um a constant and to me it seems an increasing erosion in some of the things that previously had been put in place by the wealthier generations mm. um, in American society, such as a more equitable tax system that helped rein in some of these impulses. Um, and we are now seeing I, what I would argue would be a pretty rational result of that, which mm. is the uh, the tendency of wealth to accrue in ever greater numbers to ever mm. smaller numbers of people. Um, you know, and we've, we've seen that manifest in some really disturbing ways like for example you know we're actually seeing a decrease in the share of wealth owned by minority populations um mm. african americans have less wealth than they had a generation ago mm. um we're seeing things like you know the you know you can you can look at the opioid crisis but across a number of kind of measures america's health is actually getting worse and especially amongst minority populations like the the, the life expectancy of someone and, and i look at the uk as well we have this data for the uk where i also live where i live um so the life expectancy of poor people is actually declining and then you know life expectancy amongst kind of working class um white males in america is declining so mm. um all of these things feel very much like a society that's more divided on class grounds perhaps than than we've ever seen in our in our lifetimes sure i mean look i mean my family is a perfect example of that played out you know in a very sad way i went to university i was a scholarship kid my brother and my sister didn't get scholarships. They both left school at 16. Uh, you know, I got into an, an elite university and benefited from all the social connections and, uh, you know, in advantages that that brings um, in terms of people, you know, offering you positions or opportunities that you might not otherwise uh, feel you qualify for. And, um, you know, my sister lived a very different life in, in you know, basically... Uh, in public housing and and combating mental illness, uh, combating ill health, and you know she sadly died age forty eight uh, mm. from you know uh, from basically being diabetic and and drinking three liters of soft drinks a day and and smoking, you know all of which are you know bad things that public health experts tell us we shouldn't do, but for someone like my sister you know, with, with educational difficulties, a uh, very hard message for her to understand and appreciate. And, you know, when I look at our path through life, um, you know, self-evidently, there are gates that exist through which I was allowed to pass because by virtue of certain privileges that came from, you know, mainly my education um, and gates that she never even got to see exist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for me, that's, you know, that's always been behind my basic interest in, in inequality as an issue, which is in turn what led me to the forum, because, you know, you, you, you want to see on the most powerful stage in the world what people can actually do about these things and what, uh, what remedies there might be uh, for the kind of things that, that afflicted my family.
Well, I'm really sorry about your sister. Um, I had read about that before and I just want to take the opportunity of saying that's, that's a, that's a horrible thing you had to undergo. And um, my condolences to your family. Um, but it is, as you say, a very startling and very real manifestation of, of some of these trends that are happening. And I think this is how most people experience inequality, don't that, don't we? Through our family's experiences and through, um, through, you know, often through pain. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, um, you know, the, the fundamental, uh, you know, lesson for me growing up was that, you know, it was opportunity, not ability that was very often uh, lacking in, in the system uh, that one felt one was part of, you know, the, the, you know, the economy I grew up in, in Norfolk in the 1970s, uh, with Norfolk's a part of the east of England, it's an agricultural county. Uh, there was very little incentive to educate people beyond the age of 16. Uh, the local council was extremely conservative. The, um, the opportunities for kids were supposedly in an agricultural economy that had been mechanised since the 1930s and actually was reducing uh, its levels of employment dramatically. So you had kids being uh, brought onto the labour market with very few jobs, um, being told that they should expect to work in a sector that effectively was uh, was dropping off dramatically in employment possibilities. And so, you know, growing up in that in that place, you're left with the feeling that public policy, that political interest are all completely out of whack with what people's lives uh, are actually doing and what people's expectations are uh, and that's you know that sits behind my interest in in this subject I mean obviously uh, many many other people have their experiences and their kind of uh, views on it, but it, it's what drives the kind of uh, you know the, the lens through which I look at these things and you know that's why when you look at the big obvious things uh, you know when someone like Rutger Bregman says you know it's tax 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 He's absolutely not wrong, but it's extremely complex when you actually start to pick apart what what that means. And I mean, the best one, of the best reviews I've read of of uh, of that is is when Robert Schiller has been looking at uh, some of the work done on taxation in in the U.S. and other major economies, where he basically demonstrates that you know that democratic systems will not uh, tolerate much more than a third uh, rate of income tax. Uh, and that only during wartime will they go up to anything like 40% uh, taxation, and only then in, in time of war. Uh, and faced with that massive uh, issue of the refusal of, of, of electorates in democratic countries to actually put their tax money where their interests are, um, you know, you're left wondering what government does and, and what the solutions are to, uh, to this so I think that's I think that's really interesting because there are I mean you're absolutely right that we need to balance what is democratically possible with what is best practice with what we know would be effective and of course there are other there are other forms of taxation outside of income tax and mm. I don't know whether they've looked into that I mean there are things like wealth taxes sure. or inheritance taxes which absolutely. are aimed at kind of that cross generational wealth which you know might be interesting to look at and might be more politically mm. palatable I don't know if they are or not but you know we so probably are of, going to need some tax innovation yeah both of those things are um you know uh, under democratic debate, if you look at the work of a pollster like Frank Luntz, for example, in the US, uh, in trying to reframe the idea of inheritance tax as death tax, yeah, um, and the uh, and you know the the very democratic foundation of the United States, which is built on this idea that any single individual can go out and make a difference, um, you know that ideal is. Uh, laughable in the context of people who are able to uh, go out and start far, far further in the race than than you or I might start or other yeah. folks might start simply by virtue of their money. And yeah. uh, you've seen that, I think, most clearly, uh, most obviously recently with the, the US stories regarding college admissions, where yeah. you see the, the level of uh, money and enterprise that very wealthy people will put into securing their children places at elite institutions. Uh, and 
it's uh, it's quite extraordinary and depressing. But yeah, I think I it's mean, it's symptomatic of something that's fundamentally wrong in 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 society. I mean, it is absolutely horrific the degree of entitlement that's uh, that's manifested by successful millionaires whose children are already well advantaged in terms of all of the educational opportunities that have been given to them and all of the their parents' ability to pay for everything from tutoring, mm. literally just going actually. I forget about trying to educate my children. I want to just give them a, a pass into the Ivy League, mm. whether they deserve it or not. I mean, I think that's the thing that really struck me as a parent was I just thought they seem really indifferent to whether their children are actually intelligent enough to get mm. into university as long as they get all the social benefits and, and kind of kudos of doing so, mm. um, which struck me as a very hollow understanding of education and the world itself so yeah rich people can do bad things rich people can also do good things and I think that's one of the things I've, I've been trying to kind of get at in this podcast is I think quite too often on the left and on the right we tend to speak in terms of good people and bad people um, you know it's very easy to devolve into mm. kind of bad actors and then you know sainted sainted heroes when actually I think most people in most situations respond to the incentives that they're given and, you know, in the case of inequality, wealthy people are given every incentive to increase their wealth because there is social cachet in doing so, even apart mm -hmm. from kind of, you know, I, I always say, well, well, if you're a billionaire, why do you need, if you've got 3 billion, why do you need 4 billion? If you've got 4 billion, why do you need 10 mm. billion? What's the incentive for me? I think, why would you do that? But then everything in their world is telling them that it's, you know, from a cultural point of view, increasing whether wealth is their purpose in life it's 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 not just a governmental problem it's also it seems to me a sort of cultural and a behavioral structural problem that we've created sure i mean i think it's it's um you know it's it's problematic on a number of of different levels and um i think it's quite interesting when you look at what it really means in modern economies so there's a wonderful example someone uh, pulled out, which is uh, about the iPhone, for example. You know, if you're a, uh, a billionaire, then uh, the iPhone I've got in my hand right now is the most expensive iPhone you can buy. I mean, I suppose you could buy a bejeweled container for it, but you can't buy a better set of applications or a better yeah. glass front for it or anything else. You know, the, the iPhone you have is the iPhone you'll get. Um, that's not true when it comes to yachts, for example, of which I have uh, zero. Um, you know, <laughs> not yet. You can. Uh, I don't think so. That's not happening. Um, so, your, you know, your peer group are the people uh, amongst whom you you judge your wealth, and also yeah. the people amongst whom you judge your your assets. So, I, I'm sure billionaires don't go around comparing the uh, number of apps they have on their iPhones. But uh, I'm sure they do go around because one sees stories about this comparing the size of their yachts. And you see people building yachts that are bigger than, than uh, another billionaire's yacht or buying a yacht uh, that's uh, more competitive or faster or something else. And, and we see that in the Harvard experiments famously where Harvard uh, business school grads were asked, you know, would they rather have a larger salary or more money than their neighbor? And yeah. they all chose uh, more money, a lower level of salary, but more than their their peers, because this desire to kind of be uh, yeah. top amongst your in group is unfortunately a very sad feature of of the human psyche. Well, it is. It's a very deeply embedded feature of the human psyche. And I think, you know, I, I agree with your point about yachts. I would suggest that actually philanthropy is also serving the function of being a yacht for a lot of billionaires these days in that, you know, they might do good work with their foundations, but there is also some element of how how big is the size of your endowment? How are you using your foundation? Competitive philanthropy is actually a sort of uh, a benign incentive, I yeah. think. You know, if you look at, for example, you know, the billionaires of the Gilded Era, I mean, they were uh, shocking uh, individuals in many aspects of their lives. But you look at someone like Andrew Carnegie, whose yeah. name lives on in the Carnegie Hall and in Scotland, where he originally came from, uh, in the endowment of an enormous network of public libraries. Um, you know, these these things stand to this day and serve a public function. And I think that uh, legacy and that kind of social ideal of uh, you know public investment is 
is powerful and uh, beneficent. I think the uh, you know the problem perhaps becomes in in the decline of that kind of uh, that social incentive towards uh, towards giving, uh, and I and I don't necessarily see now that that every single billionaire uh, is is giving at the a level of commensurate with their income, for example. Entirely. And I, you know, don't get me wrong, that there would be nothing, I would be nothing but supportive of billionaires being more philanthropic. But I would say that what we're seeing is as billionaires are a whole, are holding a greater share of global wealth, mm. even because there are, with the best will in the world, philanthropy, even if it were infinite and, and excellent, even if billionaires were giving away 98% of their salary, of their income in, in philanthropy. There are things that philanthropy can't do that can only be achieved by taxation, as we were saying earlier on this episode. So I think my, my point is, as you're seeing an increasing share of global wealth being allocated mm. to the super rich, the, the money that is now available to do things like infrastructure projects that can mm. really only be delivered by government or things like you know, um, but, 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 you know, or things like social care, education mm. that can only be delivered by governments or, or typically are only delivered by governments. Um, there's less of that money available. And mm. so you are seeing and in America, we are seeing it right now. For example, our infrastructure is absolutely crumbling. Mm. And that would be a logical that would be a logical outcome of exactly the economic trend that we are seeing. It doesn't mean that the philanthropists are doing the wrong thing by giving their money away. It sure. just means that philanthropy is not going to solve our nation's problems. So we do need to, as you were saying at the beginning, get a better balance between all the different stakeholders in society. Uh, I think also to an extent the you know although there is this growing uh, wedge of inequality the you know the billionaires are only a tiny tiny part of the story because the level at which governments can uh, potentially spend and deploy resources is is immense on the kind yeah. of global level and and there is and has been for the probably the last 25 years a reluctance to allow governments to do that and partly funded by indeed some some uh, billionaires whose ideal of government is that it gets out of their way. Um, but you're seeing uh, perhaps a change now, especially uh, in some democracies in the US uh, with uh, young Democrats like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, um, who probably wouldn't think Davos was a natural place for her to, uh, to find a home, but who might find a welcome reception for some of her ideas. Um, and uh, in the UK with uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and also in some other parts of Europe, you know, a move towards saying, well, the government needs to play a much bigger role in, in making some of these fundamental changes that are going to restore the balance in favour of those um, at the bottom end. I mean, there was a, brief, a study recently in the UK. I'm sure it probably has some resonance with, with the US too, where they looked at the median inheritance of uh, well, they looked at the overall inheritance of of the average Britain over the course of the twentieth century. And I don't know if you can guess what the median figure was for that inheritance. How much the average Brit inherited? No idea. Zero. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And um, yeah, I can speak from experience. When my father passed away, he left me with the bill for his funeral, and uh, you know his uh, his parents uh, did the same. So uh, yeah. God bless them. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but it does show you that in, you know, when we talk about wealth cascading down generations, for yeah. most people, that's not what happens. You know, that wealth doesn't ever get accumulated and it doesn't ever get re-shared out. I think that is 100% um, a perfect place for us to move on to doing the gut check game because a lot of the policies that are aimed at addressing exactly that um, are policies being discussed in the Democratic primary by some of the candidates. So shall we do that? I have in front mm. of me a trusty Red Sox baseball cap into <laughs> which I have put in a special um, inequality themed edition of the gut check, gut check game. I have put about 15 policies um, that have been floated around on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought we'd just pull one or two of them out at random and mm -hmm. test our sense of what do we think. Mm -hmm. So the first one I'm going to pull out is, ah, here's an interesting one. Um, this is an Elizabeth Warren policy. Um, mm -hmm. Universal early years childcare. 
uh, a very good idea if you look at, for example, the UK, uh, where Gordon Brown made it a centerpiece of his uh, uh, chancellorship and, and premiership, uh, basically getting uh, a lot of help to where it makes most difference, which is in very early years education. If you get kids when they're young, the evidence seems to be that you really give them a great start in life. Uh, universal provision means you don't have to spend a lot of time sorting out who deserves it and who doesn't. Uh, we can all assume that anyone's kids uh, deserves some kind of uh, decent uh, early years care. So yeah, I would say that's an absolutely tried and trusted measure that fits very well into any government's efforts to tackle inequality. A hundred percent. And as the as the parent of a young child myself, um, who's uh, six now, but I remember her early years and, and the share of our income that went towards just covering basic childcare needs so that so that I could go to work. Mm. Um, I also see it as a as a huge I mean, so it's a gender gender inequality um, tool as well, because yep. realistically, um, the motherhood gap is really where the where the gender gap is exists right now, um, and that mothers motherhood in particular, because women disproportionately bear the burden of child yeah. child rearing. Or, so or the fatherhood gap, I suppose kids. it should be called, really, since it's yeah, fathers are not contributing. There you go. Come on, dads. <laughs> Although I I don't think it's necessarily you know it's it's not a question of blame and what have you, but it is very much the case that women's careers suffer, um, and mo much of the suffering of parenthood comes in those early years when huge share of the family income goes towards um, funding exactly the childcare that would be that would be um, provided under this plan. So I am all for it, and it it does work. Here is okay. Oh, here's another one um, that's interesting that stays in the realm of childhood. Um, and this is something being proposed by Cory Booker, although we've seen experiments with it in the UK and elsewhere. Mm. Baby bonds. So this would be giving, basically giving money um, in the, uh, for, the, for the purpose of investment to um, a baby when they are born um, that can accrue over their childhood um, so that when they, when they come of age, effectively, they, they have mm. investable wealth to start with. I... I'm not entirely um, convinced about that as a as a measure. I don't think it's necessarily a bad policy. I don't know if it's uh, one that's been especially effective. I think there's a lot to be said for giving people with zero capital capital. Um, whether or not baby bonds are the best way to do that is a is a moot point because actually a little piece of that is saying that sometimes their parents are not deserving of that cash because actually to be frank it's their parents who need to spend money looking after them and perhaps that money would be better spent in a better benefits regime that actually allows parents to buy uh, clothes and buy decent meals for their kids so uh, i'm a little bit uh, on the fence about that measure and how effective it is uh, because i think you know i'm I, it smacks a little bit sometimes of the undeserving poor and the deserving, you know, infant. And I think, yeah, you know, that does a disservice to people struggling to bring up uh, children in this day and age. But yeah. that's my... My yeah, I, I think I think those are all fair points. Um, and I think, you know, I would have to look into it a lot more. I know very little about the concept. I did read something, though, and I, I would have to validate whether this is true. But I did read something that I found very compelling in a Nicholas Kristof article where he was talking about this policy. And he had a line where he said, um, if implemented within a generation, it would eliminate the minority wealth gap, mm. um, which would be extraordinary because as we talked about as i alluded to earlier in this podcast mm. um we've seen a a reversal of african-american wealth attainment mm. um so there is a there is a racial dynamic to it that i would like to know more about and that mm. i find intriguing which cory booker talks about when he talks about the policy all right should we do another one let's see what have we got here Okay. Oh, now this is an interesting one, which I'm sure um, I, I suspect has probably been discussed at at at, uh, at Davos. Universal basic income. Yeah, universal basic income. It's a really interesting idea. Um, I uh, I both uh, kind of approve of it, and also I think it's uh, there are some fundamental issues with it. I suppose the um, the approval. 
uh, is based on the fact that, you know, we're moving into a post-economic period. Keynes kind of put it very well in economic possibilities for our grandchildren. Uh, you know, we're very close to solving what he called the economic problem, which is, you know, sufficiency and having enough uh, stuff uh, to keep us going. Uh, and in that case, you, you boil down to well, what effectively almost every activity is a rent seeking activity. If it's a rent seeking activity, it's based on some kind of unfair arbitrage. Is that really a very good basis on which to distribute income? Uh, getting back to the kind of, uh, you know, the critique of billionaires. Well, maybe it's not. Uh, the problem becomes if you implement a UBI uh, on top of the existing system. And I'll give you two thing, reasons why I'm kind of um, not necessarily in agreement over that. If you look at, for example, the United Kingdom, uh, the richest man in the UK, almost, uh, or at least in the top five consistently, is someone whose uh, only contribution to uh, uh, his wealth is popping out of his mum at the right time in the right place, which is the Duke of Westminster. Uh, his ancestors owned large chunks of London sheep farms and through uh, something called leasehold he's managed to become one of the wealthiest people uh, in Britain and one of the wealthiest people in the world um, now how is that how is 400 years of that possible as a kind of fair or decent kind of uh, level playing field at which we should all start dishing out universal basic income and on the other hand the point you made about the wealth of, of African Americans uh, you look at African-Americans and the experience they suffered of slavery over 100 years where effectively they were propping up uh, the entire economy of the southern United States uh, and their exploitation was the basis of uh, a huge part of the, the nascent wealth of the US. You know, they've never received either reparation or damages for that experience and their historic uh, poverty is probably very closely correlated with uh, that that experience of uh, of their uh, ancestors and uh, you know on both those cases do we really think that having a universal basic income is is sufficient isn't it more important to have a different way of uh, of attributing uh, wealth and and benefits and there you go I probably sound like a communist now uh, but um, that's <laughs> well, just guess, my my reflection. Yeah so I guess I guess that's interesting so what you're saying is maybe universal basic income just doesn't go far enough and we need to be more redistributive. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that your argument? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I think, I think, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do the typical internet thing of go, why not both? Right. <laughs> so can't we do universal basic income and take measures to um, reduce this kind of vast wealth gap that, that, that exists. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? We can, we I, can do that. Um, I, I certainly do you think there's think, something about UBI that would prevent us from taking more, taking other measures. I, I think some of the advocates of UBI um, see it as a palliative and not as a, as part of a package of, of other measures. And Got I think it. it has to be taken as part of a package of other methods. I also think like any kind of so-called universal um, uh, provision, uh, the universality is what uh, the non-universality is what gets it into trouble. You know, who really doesn't qualify for UBI? You know, how many immigrants don't get it? How many how many years do you have to live in the US before you qualify? You know, what uh, what level of citizenship gets you access to that income? So there's all sorts of problems based into uh, how universal is a universal provision. But again, these are kind of things that you can probably think about in the broad sense, you know, in the broad sway of the things. I think it's a, it's an interesting idea. Right. Shall we do one more? If we've got time, it'd be great. Yeah. Okay. So I've got, I've just pulled one out of the hat, um, which is a very commonly discussed democratic proposal um, advocated for by Bernie Sanders, but, but adopted by everyone else. A $15 minimum wage. Minimum wage, $15, yeah. Um, it, I suppose it depends where you want to put your your minimum wage intervention. Um, I mean, we know the problem that they're trying to meet with that, which is that we seem to be in developed economies right now, moving towards full employment, but low pay. So yeah. we're beginning to see the re-emergence of what people call working poverty, uh, where people are having, you know, not just one job, but a number of jobs, uh, and yet still find themselves unable to pay the bills at the end of the week. Um, and 
you know the the minimum wage is one tool in the uh, the battle uh, to remedy that. I guess, uh, like any policy, the question is how good a tool is it, um, and how well is it enforced, and what are the kind of perverse side effects that it might uh, it might have. I mean, just to give give an example for of France where the employment conditions are notoriously tough and where um, employers take on a, a big number of duties including uh, a, a decent minimum wage and very decent employment uh, one of the side effects of that has been the development of uh, non-manned checkouts and, and non-manned uh, tills in stores and uh, you know the, the French have become leaders in getting rid of people um, and mechanizing processes. So it's not necessarily uh, the case that a universal, uh, sorry, that a, a minimum wage is uh, a brilliant tool. Um, it's really a case of how well it's enforced and how, uh, and how the adoption is kind of set up. But I do think in the current situation we face, which is that we're seeing people who really can't afford to, to do what they're doing, a minimum wage is is important um but it's yeah, not it's I, not enough yeah i think i think my take on it is we have a minimum wage in america i don't know why we bother because as you say it is set at a level that is below kind of subsistence level for current society so my i think we definitely need to raise the minimum wage because if you're going to have one set it at a set it at a level that is appropriate mm -hmm. um but my my challenge to the specifically the 15 dollar minimum wage problem is i feel like it's just setting up for us to have this conversation again in 15 years mm. because i i think you know, the way they've said it is, it, I, I think, why $15, right? It, it, mm. They picked $15 because it's kind of easy to remember and it sounds like the right amount of money. But I think we probably need to look at setting a, setting a minimum wage, you know, that's that, that's that's based on measures of, um, of, 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 of a livable wage rather mm. than a, a set number. Um, because it, it feels to me like we keep doing this in America and in other countries, you know, you'll, you'll set a policy based on the standards. Now, I think the legislation is supposed to have it increase at, a, you know, at a certain fraction and then benchmarked against things. But mm. I think you probably don't, I probably wouldn't go in at $15. I would probably go in at, you know, something slightly more complicated, but more, but doesn't require additional legislation to fix. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that it's coming from Bernie Sanders. Um, and I think it, in a sense, it, it demonstrates an, an interest in fixing problems of 30 years ago um, yeah. when when minimum wage might well have been a great tool. But if you look at the problems facing young people today, if you look at the you know some of the biggest issues that we have, it's housing, for example, the way the housing market is completely lost track with people's wages and incomes you know it used to be something like 15 percent of someone's income in in the 70s and 80s and now it's up to 65 percent of income uh you know yeah. this is a much bigger issue for people than uh the minimum wage they need to find somewhere to live and some way to kind of uh, look after themselves so and then we have to deal with the possibility that we might you know that the world in which an entire population can support itself by through through work that is well reimbursed might be something we have to revisit that mm. we might have to revisit as as we move into a, a more automated future um and you know you talk about self to self checkout tills um but that's that's the norm here in the uk um i think it's very common in uh, around the world and i think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that and it may be you know, I, I, I stay awake at night literally worrying about self-driving self-driving trucks because if you look at industries that people without higher education can sustain themselves and their families doing, and you look at where the history of the, the trade union movement in America and around the world has been, it's been often things like industries like trucking, which may not exist in you know even 10 years from now. So mm. what policies can we set now that are going to still work in a world where we do not have enough paid work for the entire mm. population to do? Yeah, it's the car wash problem where, you know, car washes have existed um, as automated solutions to keeping your car clean for years. And yet you go across America and you'll find people, uh, gangs of people ready to uh, wash and service your car. And the idea of people out competing uh, machinery is a very depressing one. And yet we're still seeing it happen 
um, in in the third industrial revolution, not in the fourth industrial revolution. So there are some fundamental things that we need to get our head around fixing. And I'm I'm not sure that some of these rather old fashioned solutions are going to be uh, making an enormous difference uh, when it comes to tackling them. And that's one of the reasons we get people together in Davos to kind of discuss things like that and to try and figure out if there are better, smarter ways of, of doing this. There you go. Well, let's let's end on that plug. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been it's been really helpful and informative. Karen, thanks me. for thanks for the time. Really nice speaking to you. All the best. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. And that's it. As always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I will be with you next week. Again, in the meantime, if you are looking for me on Twitter, you can always find me at KarenJR. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. If you are not yet registered to vote or have not requested your absentee ballot for this year's election, because remember there are state and local elections every year, please go to votefromabroad.org for an American expat like myself or vote.org if you are back at home. If you have a candidate that you're already starting to support, I would love to hear from you. Just drop me a line on Twitter um, or send me a message in the Anchor app if you are using the Anchor app on your phone. Otherwise, I will look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye.